right, it's Saturday morning, so that means it's time for Mike Onesco's Renegade Rock here on the Rogue Radio Podcast Network, bringing all the great music to you every Saturday morning, 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, and now we have interviews, and today we have a very special guest, rock legend, great drummer of all time, Ainsley Dunbar. Welcome to Renegade Rock, Ainsley. Hi there, Mike. How are you doing today? And we just heard Kahootek. We opened up the show with Kahootek. And I have to tell you, when when I first heard that song, a drummer in my band at the time comes up and goes, Mike, you got to listen to this. And we went in and heard it. And I'm just like, whoa. Tell us tell us about that. Kahootek. I mean, it's legendary. You're drumming on there. Well, the drumming's legendary, but the rest of it is really good, too. <laughs> I mean, you know, I taught them everything they needed to know. But, uh, just joking. Anyway, Kahootek uh, was just one of those things that just came to us. Did you guys write that all together at a, at a practice or something? Well, it was actually George Tickner who used to write more of those uh, now, see, type of songs. N- nobody knows about George Tickner in the history of Journey, so we have to let people know who George Tickner is. Well, George Tickner was a rhythm guitarist in the band at the very beginning, and he wrote more of these uh, outward-aimed songs, which uh, were sort of a little bit way different from what was being played at what? the time. So different, way different. He was a guy that had the big enough hands where the bridge, the whole top, and <laughs> I forget what, what guitarists call that when they... Oh, the capo? Yeah, to, to, so you could lock it in for a different... Uh, key, right. Uh, key, yeah. So he could do that with his thumb over the top. Wow. And then he would uh, play the, uh, the other notes that went with it. And so he could do that automatically. That way he came up with these off-the-wall songs. Well, those are uh, great tunes, man. And, of course, I, I believe that we have to also say Greg Rowley wrote some of that because uh, of the keyboard intros. Right, right. Yeah, that intro to Kahootek is just great. And we just went to town. It was one of those things which was uh, really how, different to start with. How did you hook up with Journey? Your career spans. So many decades, and you were part of the original British blues boom. And but, how did you hook up with Journey? Well, I was um, actually in England with David Bowie, and I was come back to America. Was that when you did Rebel Rebel in those tunes? Yes, yes. Fantastic. Then I came back to America, and every so often I'd get these phone calls from Walter Herbert and Her- Herbie. Yeah, and I didn't know who the heck they were, so I didn't really bother replying. And then when my stint finished with David, due to his manager giving me a piece of legal scrap with uh, six <laughs> clauses on it, okay, and, uh, they all made the money. I said, oh, "Sorry, I'm not signing that." Right. I came back to to America, and there was this another little phone call message. From Herbie. Just from Herbie, and I replied that they came down and brought songs, and I loved what I was listening to because it was right up my alley. You know, they said, come up to San Francisco and see how you fit in with the band, so I went up there and did that. Next minute, I moved up to San Francisco and uh, joined Journey. Man, great stuff. 1974, yeah. I remember you guys, when I first met you, you were rehearsing at SIR Studios on Folsom Street, and you guys were, I think you were auditioning singers at the time. It was right before you had Steve Perry in the band. Yeah. Singers. Quite a few guys. But Greg Rowley had the voice, I mean. Yeah, but he didn't have the uh, top ten voice. Right, the top ten, right. That's what the management, the label wanted, right? Yeah, that was what the deal they came. Either find somebody to sing or, uh, you know, you're out of uh, CBS is no longer backing you. Yeah, well, the first journey is the only journey in my opinion. <laughs> There's no, uh, there's no other journey. I can't listen to any of that other stuff. Uh, I'm, but, I'm, you know, I'm, 
from the first four albums plus we did uh, times three. Right. So they, they put a couple of other little songs in there too. So what was on the other albums? So what was it like working with Roy Thomas Baker when you did the first record with Steve Perry? Roy was a little antsy and a little bit too. It was a you know different. He did a good job. Yeah. He was different. You know, I've seen right. him a couple of times from getting beaten up and stuff. But, <laughs> <laughs> So, Ainsley, how did you get your start in the business, and who influenced you? Who was the drummer that you saw and you said, this is what I want to do, this is what I want to be? Well, that's really difficult to say, because I, you know, I was a, a Downbeat fan, if anybody ever remembers Downbeat. I know Downbeat, yes. So, I used to, in England, I used to have that as one of my uh, publications that arrived at my house, and I used to watch all the uh, the jazz that was happening in America. Yes. All the upcomes. So, I was... I would go out and try and buy these albums and of course in those days they weren't available you couldn't find an album that you saw advertised in Downbeat for like four years later really? wow yeah and also you didn't want to have them shipped over because you never know who you were buying them from and if you'd ever see them that was the case and I used to go down to Rexy and hunt out all different albums but mainly the, it was all those bebop drummers Dave Brubeck's drummer Joe Morello I saw that guy play when I was like crazy I think in Liverpool playing with his hands Hands, you know, it was like, whoa. Yeah, but one of the things he did, which was phenomenal. Odd meter. He, he, no, he just, I don't know how long he practiced all these stuff. But he was playing with brushes at the beginning of the song. Right. Then he flipped, he put, he flipped one brush up in the air, put the other brush down, and picked two sticks up. And when it came to the downbeat, that brush landed right on top of the kick drum. Wow. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I mean... I know, he was pretty ahead of his time. He really was. Yeah, then he did Take Five. Take Five, and yeah. And I was the only guy backstage that stayed to say hi and ask him a few questions. Wow, you got to meet him? Yeah. Wow, that's cool. How old were you when that happened? 17. Wow, what an impression, huh? Yeah, he told me he had to practice every day once he reached 35. Wow. And uh, that really bothered me. <laughs> I, I, didn't, I, I didn't have the same problems. I still had enough energy and all the rest of it. He had energy up the... Uh, he, yeah, up the yin yeah. yeah. But uh, he, he, you know, he really played so, so were, were you, are you from London? Where were you born in England? I was up in Liverpool. Liverpool, Be- Beatles country there. Yes, well, that's what changed everything. When the Beatles came over to America, so records became available. Right. Because they had to sell their records to America, so all of a sudden distribution from America became the same time, released the same time as in America. Well, that was great for you guys. So that really helped everything out because there was such a delay on everything. What was your first big band that you were in big English band. Oh, uh, the Mojos. The Mojos. Yep. Was that like a Beatles type band? It was a pop band. A pop band. Were you playing loud drums or were you still into your jazz then? I was still into jazz and some, some, a lot of the times it took me quite a while to realize how to use a kick drum because with playing jazz you don't play the kick drum all the time. You just use his accents. So I had to redesign my mind to play uh, kick drum beats but I want to tell you I played jazz all, all the way through Liverpool all my younger days in Liverpool. How cool. And then when the Beatles hit all the jazz clubs closed. Right. 
I'm trying to find a jazz gig. Good I luck. I get, I get this call to play a gig with, uh, what the heck was the band? Uh, Derry Wilkie and the Freshman, I think it was. Except it was without, it was without Derry Wilkie. Wow. And it was behind Cheryl Marsden, I think her name was. Wow. It was in northern, uh, northern Wales. Fantastic. And I went over there and my first gig playing rock and roll, which I hated because everybody said, you, they don't pay anything, you know, you're better off playing jazz. So I went there and I played my first gig, played with my peers, and it was just like, holy shit, people love this music and they're getting off on what I'm doing. So I suddenly realized instead of playing in front of uh, people who were going, oh man, that's so cool. <laughs> You know, yeah, man. Beat, get three people in the audience. The, the beatniks, the beatniks. So I got to the first gig I did, rock and roll, and it was like, yeah. This is it, man. So, and also, it quadrupled the pay I made with any gig I did. With the jazz, right. So I went, okay. This is it, I'm hooked. Yeah, I'm hooked. And also, I like the fact that I'm playing with people around my age instead of 95-year-old guys. I'm going to applaud if they can wake up. <laughs> so I was really happy and that was the beginning of my sort of move and then of course from there I joined a few big gigs around England a little band called the Exchequer's Trio and I had my own Johnny Johnson Trio Quartet Really? Oh, yeah. Wow. To do little gigs around Liverpool, dance gigs and stuff at the very beginning because nobody knew who the hell I was or I didn't know anybody else. You know, it's just like, do this and see how far you get. Exactly. So, so my dad had acted as my agent, my booking agent. Wow. How cool is that? He got some gigs. Yeah, he hadn't done anything like that before, so it was very interesting for him. So, you know, we, could, we just uh, kept moving on, and then, of course, when I was 17, I joined the Mojos, right? You know, sometime after I was watching uh, the Brewback, I left Liverpool and went down to London. Did you guys do records? Yeah, yeah, did a couple back, way back then. What led up to your entrance into John Mayall with Peter Green? Well, that was... Um, that was right after after the Mojos. Right the after, case, wow. The case of going down this little like little bar in Soho, London. I sat in with the the Rock King, and I can't remember his name. Uh, the, the blues guy. He got the name of being the king of the blues. Alexis Corner. The Alexis Corner Blues Band. Right. Wow, that's he, cool. For drama. So he invited me down. So I took the wife who with me at that point. We went and watched him play, and then he invited me to sit in. And then I sat in, and I'm sitting there watching this whole thing and uh, watching him play and playing with him. And after we changed beats a couple of times from left, you know, offbeat to downbeat, I was getting a little worried how this was going to happen on a stage gig. Right, right, right. In. So anyway, he takes us back to his apartment and then tells us all this stuff about how this is going to be the greatest for me and this and the other. And I went, okay, let me think about it, Alexis. So we went home. Next morning, I get phone rings. It's John May. He goes, <laughs> um, you know, I'd like you to come and see my band. And, uh, and I go, okay, where is it? And he goes, it's at Town Hall in Chelsea. So I went, okay. He says, the ticket will be, there'll be a ticket for you there. So I go and tell them, and I get upstairs. I'm sitting on the uh, on the balcony. Soon as the first notes come out of Peter Green's guitar, I just went, whoa. Whoa, yeah. I've got to play with this band. So John calls me next day and goes, uh, well, what do you think? I think I would just absolutely love to play. Fantastic. How cool. <laughs> How much you paid, right? <laughs> That's so great. He, he told me it was really cheap. I mean, it was nothing. Nothing. But uh, the fact that he goes, okay, 
We're playing Norfolk University tomorrow. Just get your drums to my house, this, and I'm um, at so-and-so, and they just, no, no rehearsal. <laughs> so straight on stage, and... Uh, you were just playing it by ear. All I want to know, is it shuffle, or is it straight? Right, that's all you need to know, right, right. Slow blues, you know, what I'm saying. got all that together, and then after that, of course, I, I joined uh, Jeff Beck. Right. And that didn't work out. That was with Rod Stewart and Ronnie Wood. Wow, you were in that version of uh, Jeff Beck. Yep, yep, right at the beginning. So you didn't do the record then, right? No, I no. didn't, but I sort of helped him arrange the songs. I couldn't work with the guy because he wanted to work like once every month if he wanted to do the gig. <laughs> so we'd get all picked up in a limousine, we'd go down to his place, which is south of London, and then we'd wait outside. If he didn't show up, we weren't doing the gig. Are you serious? I'm serious. So I took like four or five months of that, and I went, I've had enough. That's when I started retaliation. Fantastic. And that's a great band. So who wrote the warning? Is that is that your tune? Did you write that with the guitar player or the singer? Or? I think we all wrote it. You all wrote it. What led to Black Sabbath doing that and really releasing it big time to the world? Well, I think Ozzy, Ozzy loved me. We used to meet on some gigs and he would chat to me backstage. And that must have been interesting. <laughs> Yeah, he was always telling me he's, he's lost his voice and all the rest, but you know. I love his voice. I love Ozzy's voice. Yeah, but he would <laughs> he would just go <clears throat> like this on stage. And I was watching. I was watching on the side of the stage, so he looked back at me singing and go. <clears throat> <laughs> We're talking to Ainsley Dunbar here on Mike Onesco's Renegade Rock, legendary rock drummer Ainsley Dunbar. Now we're going to take a little break and we're going to play something from one of his projects called Mutiny. And we'll be right back with Ainsley Dunbar on Renegade Rock.
This is Michael Nesco. Welcome back to Renegade Rock here in the Rogue Radio Podcast Network. We're talking with rock legend Ainsley Dunbar. And I'm telling you, these stories are just great, Ainsley. You can just keep going if you want. Okay, what else can I tell you? Whereabouts in my life did we get to? How did you end up in the Starship after you left Journey? Well, I used to do sessions with Pete Sears, the bass player. Right. Because he's English. He realized that Starship was going to be maybe needing a drummer. So he put it forward, just asked me, and then we went from there. Wow. You know, they went from this hippie psychedelic band to when you joined the band, you came out with Jane. It was like, wow, these guys are a rock band. They got Ainsley Dunbar. They got Marshalls. It's great. I loved it. Really cool. Yeah, it, it was cool, actually, because it was the beginning of a new era. For, because, yes, uh, it was. We did Girl, Girl with the Hungry Eyes. Jane and... Isn't there Find Your Way Back? Is that another one, too? No, that, that's another one, yeah. We actually did a song um, with a 16-bar intro, drum intro. Wow. Three love points era. We'll have to dig that up. I just played the beginning of it or something. It was they, cool. They, they go, oh, could you do a 16-bar opening to this? So, uh, okay, okay. So I just knocked it around with the sound of the, what I was coming into and just knocked it out. And everybody took off to go and have, uh, you know, a few minutes to smoke and all the rest of it. And I had them back in there in about 10, 15 minutes. Your drum sound on that record is huge, too. It's really good. I, who who did the, who engineered that record? Roy Nevison? Yes. I think it was Ron Yeah. So, uh, the, my favorite story... Did, Ron I, Nevison. Yeah, Ron Nevison. Knowing you, since I've known you for quite a few years now, when I first met you at SIR in, on Folsom Street, that was in the 70s. I reunited. Remember, I met you. You were doing the Tony Spinner record for Mike Varney up at Prairie Sun. And, and I came up, and there you were. And, you know, you were on the fourth Blindside record, and we played around for a while. That was fun, man. Okay, Ainsley, there's two stories that, I've, that you've told me over the years that I just love and I, I would love to have you share them with the, our Renegade Rock listeners. One of them is the coin toss. Can you explain that? Well, it wasn't really a coin toss. A coin toss. toss. What's the story on that? The story on that is the, the manager of Ch- Jimmy Chas Chandler. No, that was assistant. Oh, I know. I know, who, I know who you're talking about. His name is Mike something or other, right? So between the two of them, they decided they wanted to pay us 20 pounds. 
will pay. And I said, that's not good enough. I want 30. That's Jimmy's manager, right? Jimmy Hendricks. Yeah, so obviously it became not a toy, coin toss so much, much as a... Who uh, worked for cheaper... Yeah. So that's why Mitch Mitchell got the gig. I believe so. And then my other great story that you told me was when you showed up for Frank Zappa's thing. What did he, what did he tell you? Oh, yeah. You better... We better play. Yeah, no. Yeah, he says, "What am I? Show me what all what I'm paying you all this money for, or something." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and, the, and you had to set up and just do it, right? Right. And that's where we came up with uh, Chunga's Revenge. That's crazy. That's nuts. That must have been that must have been nuts playing with Frank Zappa. <laughs> Well, there wasn't really any place to play, but we set up drums there and he played guitar. And that's where he just recorded it, just to get an idea. So we're having a great time. We've been talking to Ainsley Dunbar. And by the way, I just want to let you know that Ainsley's going to be playing on a solo record. I'm finally going to do a Mike Onesco solo record. Just Mike Onesco. And Ainsley has agreed to play on it, and I'm very excited. I'm excited to play with you too, Mike. It's been a while. It's been a long while. 1996 was the, the last time we did a record. 1996. Well, I must have been five then, right? <laughs> no, I was 40 in 19... No, in 1993, I was 40 when I signed with Mike Varney. So I was 44, I think, when, when we did that record. Isn't that crazy? Well, thank you for joining us today on Renegade Rock. Do you have anything you want to say to our listeners? Yeah, keep your eye out for my uh, book, which should be out within the next 10 years. Oh, in the next 10 years? <laughs> Fantastic. I, I can't wait to read that. And I'll have a few little stories about each band I played with. Fantastic. You played with everybody, Ainsley. It's incredible. I mean, David Bowie, White Snake, Here I Go Again. I mean, there's so many other bands that we probably don't even know about that you're on, right? Well, you just have to go to AinsleyDunbar.com. Yeah, just go to bio, everything. Thanks again, Ainsley Dunbar, for coming on Renegade Rock, and we'll be talking to you soon. Yeah, and everybody look after yourself and stay safe. Thank you, Ainsley. Take care.
Thanks again, Ainsley Dunbar, for coming on Renegade Rock on the Rogue Radio Podcast Network. And we'll see you next week, kids. <laughs>